Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Christian Leken. I'm a visiting professor at the, the European Institute. And uh, I have the pleasure and the honor to welcome uh, today at LSE uh, uh, Mr. Alexander Vondra, who is the Deputy Prime Minister of the Czech Republic uh, uh, in charge of uh, European affairs. Uh, it's a pleasure for me because uh, before coming to London for two years, I had the pleasure to spend three years in, uh, in Prague. So uh, uh, it brings me back to my former life. Um, let me uh, present uh, Mr. Vondra, who is a uh, uh, graduate from the Charles University in, uh, in Prague. And uh, I must say that uh, before 1989, uh, you were a leading member of the dissent movement, Charter 77. You were very young at this time, but you, as a young man of 27, 20 years old, you were the speaker of the Charter. Uh, when we go to your website, uh, it's interesting to see some pictures uh, because you were also very much involved in uh, music, and uh, especially you manage uh, a rock and roll uh, band which was called Naroni Shida. And uh, after um, 1989, you become a leading member of the Civic Forum Movement, and uh, you served as the foreign policy advisor to President Václav Havel uh, before uh, going to the United States in 1997. You were the ambassador of the Czech Republic in the United States from 1997 to 2001. Uh, you are very committed in the transatlantic relations. Uh, as you know, uh, political scientists uh, are always trying to put people in boxes, in categories. So I will not put you in the category of the neo-Gaulists. Uh, politicians, not really. Uh, you are very attached to uh, the relations between the United States and, and uh, uh, Europe. And uh, you uh, become Minister of Foreign Affairs of your country in 2006 uh, before uh, becoming 2007 the uh, uh, Deputy uh, Prime Minister. You also elected uh, in northern Bohemia as a member of the Senate. Very nice uh, city of Lito uh, Mejitse. Uh, I've been there once and I remember there is a, a very nice uh, main square, it's a typical Bohemian uh, uh, city. So, uh, uh, Minister, welcome at LSC. And your speech uh, will be about competitiveness in Europe, EU competitiveness. Are we on the right track? Uh, we are delighted to give you the floor now. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. For this introduction. Uh, I don't know whether I was too young when I joined the Czech politics, 
early in the 90s when you know we regained the freedom but definitely now I am getting old and tired uh, I'm getting ready for leading my country for the EU presidency uh, early next year first time ever of course as a newcomer and you know I got the idea somehow you know to refresh my mind to get off my weight so I started to plan a few months ago that I will go to Greenland and cross the Greenland in, in August with my son. And since I made this decision, I'm getting one problem after another with my legs. So, you know, I don't know whether I would be competitive enough for my son to uh, live up to that commitment. But certainly thanks for inviting me to the famous LSC. Uh, you have heard that I would say a few words on the EU competitiveness, but, uh, you know, don't be afraid. I would not do so from the economic angle. I am not an economist. Uh, my remarks would uh, uh, be rather from the political uh, perspective. Uh, as a politician who is sometimes blamed for letting his dissident nature to show more than the laws of political correctness allow us, I hope that I would not harm you. Uh, but I would argue that some dissidents and icon breaking is beneficial for the EU today. Uh, let me begin by paraphrasing Mr. Lika Fries, the pro-vice-chancellor of the Copenhagen University. Just as Britain hosts the world's top tennis tournament but never wins it, so the European risk to be in a similar situation with our competitiveness or to add more fuel into fire with our current proposals how to fight the climate change. But let's start more broadly. Thanks to the enlargement, EU has become the largest single market in the world, serving almost 500 million people with a common GDP of more than 12 trillion euros. We have the largest share of the world export. We are the greatest industrial producer and we attract most investment on this planet. And uh, contrary to many arguments uh, which you could uh, hear from France to Netherlands, uh, if you measure this according uh, to the economic numbers, this enlargement contributed to the well-being of, of, of Europe and not just to the newcomers but also to the old members. Just look Germany and their numbers. In the past five years their GDP was growing in contrast to, you know, the development throughout the 90s. So certainly uh, the same goes with Austria. Austria was a, you know, dead socialist country all the 90s. And since the new market emerged for their Raiffeisen banks, Erste banks, they are now the player number one in, in, in many Eastern European countries. And if you come today to Austria, it's a booming, booming country.
country. Yet, we are still not the most competitive uh, entity in the world, despite all those progresses. Uh, rather contrary, somehow we are quickly losing our margin to the emerging Asian economies in particular. According to 2007-2008 Global Competitiveness Report, U.S. still remains the champions of the world competitiveness. That does not come as a shock. However, the fact that Korea has climbed up from number 30 to number 11 in the list of the most competitive countries in less than two years is a little bit more worrying. China, Taiwan, other Asian countries are following the similar pattern. And this happens eight years after the launch of the so-called Lisbon Strategy that sets the goal of making Europe the world's most competitive knowledge-based economy in the world by 2010. So is the EU on the right track? As the times are changing, not only the founding treaties of the EU need to be adapted, but especially the content of the policies that are based on their provisions must be reformed. At times of change, the time is ripe for reforms. The demand for adaptability of the system increases. The success of each and every entity depends on its capacity to see problems from new perspectives, to formulate priorities anew, and to set them into an adequate hierarchy. Isn't this perhaps one of the weaknesses of our continent? At the end of the first decade of the new millennium, the shape of our future is the looming. With globalization, new challenges emerge, and doubt is being cast upon paradigms that used to be unshakable. The long-term trends of economic performance and the distribution of richness in different parts of the world are changing to our detriment. The prominent place of Europe in both the world economy and politics is less self-understood than before. The demographic trends in Europe are causing serious concerns. And the impact of both climate change as well as our policies to tackle it are and could further multiplying. With new technological and communication tools, new security risks emerge, aggravated by new dangerous ideologies hostile to the core values of the Euro-Atlantic civilization. The increase of invert prices of energy resources and food are making their accessibility in future much less certain. To sum it up, the world around us is not only different from the world at times of the dawn of the European integration. It, also, it is also very different from the world just ten years ago. It brings about a new imperative, capacity to adapt. The price we will have to pay for rigidity and wasting opportunities in the new era will be far higher than we can afford. Czech Republic has been through a strongly uh, 
instructive experience of totalitarian, the so-called real socialism, at times when the founding members of the EU were putting the European project together, my country could not just only participate, but was violently separated from the dynamic economic development of the rest of the world. And just uh, this year, we are commemorating this year with famous AIDS at the end, you know, 1938, the Munich Agreement, 48, the communist coup d'etat, and 68, the Russian invasion. Uh, so, Czechoslovakia of the 1930s belonged to the 15 strongest economies in the world. But in 1989, after 40 years of communism, devastated, it was deeply lagging behind, lost uh, the political respect of the world, devastated its own environment and failed to ensure a proper living standards to all its citizens. Thanks to our own painful experience, we view and analyze the development of both economical and potential, political potential of the EU precisely on the background of the metamorphosis of the ever more dynamic world. That is the very reason why we think that the problem of maintaining and increasing competitiveness of the EU is crucial. And that's why we believe that the solution is to make Europe uh, more open, uh, both internally as well as externally, and not to make it just close entity behind some new, uh, newly built walls. In the globalized world of the 21st century, the competitive economic potential is not only a condition for maintaining our material and social standards, and thus guaranteeing the internal political and social cohesion of the EU. It is also a precondition for solving all the problems, including the environmental ones, as well as for acquiring the restricted energy resources in the global economy. The global competitiveness is a prerequisite for ensuring a good position for both the EU and its member states on the political map of the world. Only an excellent economic potential can be a source of political authority of the EU globally. It determines the range of its global influence unable to finance its security and defense, and economic performance thus determines our position vis-à-vis -vis our suppliers of energy as well as the other resources. And last but not least, it also enables us to bear the costs of protecting the environment. So what should be the solution? Uh, first, we would recommend go back to the basics. We do not have to reinvent anything here. In most areas of economic life, the market allocates the resources optimally unless it is prevented from doing so by unnecessary regulatory restrictions. 
And just, you know, we are realists, so I would like to underline here that I'm not referring to certain legitimate measures to correct externalities of the market, but mostly to the interventions that are driven by political interests rather than by the well-being of the citizens. Internal market has all tools we need to boost the EU competitiveness. We just need to make full use of its potential, which, alas, still is not the case. Restrictions of free movements of services are artificially strangling the main source of European growth. The same goes for the free movement of workers. Pockets of protectionism are preventing us to profit fully of the opportunities of the single market. It is for these reasons that the Czech Republic uh, EU presidency in 2009 will present dismantling barriers as the key motto. And we mean, if we are talking uh, about the dismantling barriers, we mean to, uh, to continue our fight to have all those four fundamental freedoms uh, as uh, a topic uh, or top priority and will try to market it to the European citizens as a main receipt for increasing European competitiveness. Uh, we will try to derive the attention of Europeans distracted by a platform of the EU policies back to where the idea of European integration has started. This might not seem too imaginative at first sight, but I believe that it will have a far greater value added than joining the race for more and more new and newer priorities and policies as we often see it with other rotating presidencies. And it will not be easy goal because just take two examples. One is this freedom of uh, movement of the people. The labor market is still not fully liberalized. There are five countries which still keep uh, their uh, labor market protected. France, Belgium, Denmark. They promise to open, not to apply for another derogation. But Germany, it's very uncertain because they have the elections in September 2009 and the government has already leaked that they would apply for another two years protection and Austria can follow, you know, it's usually follow Germany on those policies. And there is no single reasons, logical reasons for that, you know, the trade union maybe they are afraid, but it's not justified. We research the numbers. It's no more than 13,000 Czechs are working in German market. It's nothing, you know, 13,000. With Poles, maybe it's a bit more, but, you know, they are not going to destroy the German labor market. Or another example is the services, market of the services. Uh, there was so much hysteria about this Bolkenstein, Frankenstein doc, uh, uh, directive. Uh, you know, it was the key theme in the French referendum. But... Now it will enter into force, this semi-liberation, 
beginning by January next year. And I'm 100% convinced that, uh, you know, nothing is going to happen to the stability of the French service market. That this fear about the Polish engineers, it was not justified. So, it will not be an easy task, and it's not as trivial. Second, I think we should go more for horizontal approaches. The revised Lisbon strategy is currently the main framework for solving the questions of competitiveness of the EU. Uh, we, however, have to realize that given the extent of regulatory powers of the EU, almost all areas of the EU decision-making have a direct or indirect impact on the EU competitiveness. We will never succeed to boost our economy's performance unless decisions across all EU policy areas, be it in the domain of energy and environment, protection of intellectual property, justice and home affairs or any other, are taken with due care for streamlined decision-making. Huge investment into science and research will not bring their fruit if they are not absorbed by a flexible and effective economic system. If educated people will have trouble finding jobs on a rigid labor market, if frustrated scientists will be further leaving Europe to the U.S. Investment into the technical infrastructure of the single market will be useless if productive participants of the market will be suffocated by regulations that aims very oftenly only at the administrative or political comfort of the regulator. The climate change package can serve as a typical example of how important it is to assess impacts of regulation from as many angles as possible. How important it is to reconcile ecological requirements with both the economic and security interest. And here I am deeply convinced that we need to uh, have the balance in certain triangle. There is the competitiveness of Europe internally as well as externally with China and India. There is the environmental concern and there is the security concern. And the security concern probably is not necessarily the same if you approach this from the perspective of Prague or Warsaw on one hand and if you approach this from the perspective of London or Britain in general because being an island you have the freedom of deliveries in every port while if you are uh, located in the center of the continent your uh, you have certain limits here. My country is an industrial country heavily dependent on fossil energy sources. The same goes for Poland or Germany. At the same time, given our geographical position, we are highly dependent on Russian gas and oil. To put it very bluntly, for us the climate change package, as it is formulated now, 
might mean a more excessive, expansive energy and a less competitive industry. It might mean also a choice between the nuclear energy and gas. Domestically, our obligation towards our coalition partner, the Green Party, prevent us from the time being from building a new nuclear power plant. And gas means more political dependency on Russia, which has made it clear that it intends to use energy also to strengthen its political clout on its periphery, as we could see, you know, in Lithuania, in Ukraine. Clearly, we have some hard decisions to make, either to try to modify slightly the current course of the European policy, which is almost impossible if you take how, you know, this fashional way is strong and it's difficult to, to blow against the winds. Or uh, we can be brought back under the arms of the Russian bears, which, you know, we have the memory quite alive still, and it's not a fun, you know, this kind of perspective. Or we can just let the current coalition break down. So what is the alternative here? So by saying this, I don't mean to downplay the leading role of the EU has decided to assume in tackling the climate change. I, however, however, believe that we should seek balanced solutions and try to reconcile the environmental approach and the Lisbon agenda perspective with our important security concerns. Jorgo Hatsimarkakis, the member of the European Parliament's uh, Internal Market Committee, expressed fear that an excessive focus on the sustainable dimension of growth risks that leading to losses of its economy, of the EU competitiveness on an international level. I subscribe to that view. If European regulations are too rigid, they are less likely to be adopted by the EU men's, EU men's competitors, especially emerging countries and powers like China or India. EU should not abandon its plans to tackle the climate change, but also try to reinforce its position, especially in the light of the current US and the global economic stagnation, and avoid formulating standards on a purely ethical basis. And, you know, we are discussing the measures. The Chinese, you know, they are putting into operation every 10 days one thousandth of the megawatt of the classic coal power plant. So that gives you the perspective. So to be a bit provocative perhaps, last week you had David Miliband here to speak here about the climate change issue and he said as I found in the text of the public speech, that the green, and I'm quoting, the green was the new red, end of the quotation. 
So may I say that both as a member of non-left party and a former dissident, are we sure that the new red is a good color for Europe in the global world? There are several other tools that can help us to boost the EU competitiveness as well. Let us, for example, review the EU budget and adapt it to the challenges of the global economy. But the question is, you know, we are eager as Sweden as well, you know, that Commission would uh, publish the white book, white paper on the budget reform early next year, that the, the real discussion would start already before uh, the elections uh, into the European Parliament. But we have the doubts whether President Barroso will find the courage to do that move if he wants to be reappointed. So let us also implement better regulation, or I would even not be afraid to say deregulation that is meant to unlock the business potential. Yes, there are the projects how to make the life of, for example, the life of small and medium-sized enterprises in Europe easier. How they, But we should follow the path that the new measures would make the life for them really easier and not complicated. Let us also reinforce the education, research, innovation triangle and build together the skills for the 21st century. All of these will belong to the topics of the presidency to come. So, in conclusion, in 2005 the French and the Dutch know did not only refer to the text which was submitted to their decisions. Their vote was also, to a certain extent, a protest against the globalization. It was rather the case of France, or against what is called a democratic deficit, what was rather the story of the Netherlands. The two world wars and the Cold War shaped European integration as a project of peace and defense of Western values against the external enemies as well as against the internal problems of the continent. The new generations, however, perceived peace already as acquired and asked for more to legitimize further development of the EU. The new raison d'etre of the EU and its further deepening is indeed needed, but I can't think of anything better than tackling successfully the modern challenges in front of us. New insecure world, new environmental concerns, the process of the globalization. But we have to make sure that the EU, based as before on its founding principles, must and will protect the freedom of people and thus further develops the standards of living of all its citizens. Only this way will we earn support of the citizens for the European project. Thanks for your attention. Thank you very much, Minister. There were a lot of points, different issues in your 
speech, uh, better regulation, free trade, climate change, security of energy supply. And we also noticed the slogan of the Czech presidency, uh, Europe without barriers. And what is interesting is that the, the, the slogan of the French presidency, which is just before you, is a more effective Europe. So uh, you should have a, a very interesting coordination meeting with your French counterparts. <laughs> it should be, should be fun, I can imagine. So I, I opened uh, the floor now for, for questions. Yes, please, gentlemen. Uh, thank you very much for, for a stimulating speech. Um, I'd like to ask a question more about uh, what you said about the fear of uh, Russia returning to its Euro influence during your country and the geopolitics of that. Um, uh, could, you, could you say first what's the basis of, say, tell me more about the basis of your fear about Russian policy towards its Euro and more particularly, uh, what would you say about the divided policies of uh, your allies and partners on the West? Uh, there was a very interesting seminar this week uh, put on by the Foreign Policy Centre, which is the government here, and the Russian Foundation in London. And there was a good deal of talk there. The one speaker said they thought that the uh, German agreement to the Nord Stream project was the most single most significant mistake in foreign policy by any Western, by West, by Western European uh, for many years of war. And there was talk of some of Schroederization uh, as something uh, which, uh, which Europe should be uh, afraid of in terms of uh, compromising concessions to this Russia. Would, would you say what your thoughts are on this? I don't know. It's better use of the microphone. You know. <clears throat> First on this Czech and the French differences. It's exactly, you know, we selected this motto to, you know, it's always about finding the balance. So the French opted for the motto, we must protect Europe. So we <laughs> opted for a totally different kind of motto. Uh, you know, we are realists, so we will not win, but we at least want to balance <laughs> what uh, you will see the six months before. And, you know, we are just now finalizing the work on the 18 months program, which is designed, you know, uh, to uh, guarantee certain continuity in the EU work and is exactly to overbridge those differences between <laughs> the two mottos. And it's a fight. In the past few days, you know, a few weeks ago they were sleeping, but suddenly we can see the tendency to push the protectionist agenda on, on the EU uh, field, and we have a lot of problems with Swedes just to fight this. So it's not as uh, easy. Russia factor. Look, I had a debate uh, for the lunch time in the Center for European Reform, Charles Grant was moderating that and we discussed this uh, almost for two hours. And uh, I will start with two stories. Um, our friend Ambassador Duffield will forgive me <laughs> to, uh, to, to do this again. Uh, I came to London today and started uh, with a breakfast 
with uh, Lord Weidenfeld. And we briefly touched Russia, and he brought us the perspective which I think everybody in Prague, in Warsaw, can easily understand and subscribe. So we have the common challenge here. Now we have 130 million Russians, about 60, about 80 million Germans, 60 million British, 10 million Czechs, and a billion of Chinese and billion of Indians. In 2050, we will have maybe 80 million Russians, 70 million Germans, 50 million British, and 8 million Czechs, and 3 billion of Chinese and Indians. So that uh, brings us together with Russians. <laughs> it's a you know, larger, it's a global perspective, and you know, being in London, I can easily see this as the dominating perspective. But then there is another perspective, and uh, after the breakfast with Weidenfeld, I had a meeting with Jim Murphy, one of my counterparts here, your uh, secretary for the European Affairs, and we are both the great soccer fans. So he's the fan uh, of Tottenham, I'm the fan of Slavia Prague, here there is no conflict because there is one owner of that. But he's a Scottish and he is a fan of Celtic Glasgow because probably he's a Catholic. And there was a UF, UFR, uh, final, UEFA Cup final match, Celtic uh, against uh, Rangers against Zenit Petro, Pe Petersburg. And he told me that he was very happy that Petersburg defeated <laughs> Celtic as a fan of the Rangers. Uh, that uh, defeated Rangers as a fan of Celtic. He was joking, you know. But I, you know, there are arch enemies in Prague, Slavia and Sparta. It's the same like Celtic and Rangers. It's the same like. What uh, uh, Inter, Atze, Milan, and if Sparta plays this as a fan of Slavia, if Sparta plays this Manchester, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for Manchester United. If Sparta plays with some Brazilian or Argentinian team, I'm keeping even as a European uh, fingers for Argentinians. But if Sparta plays with CSK Moskva or Zenit Petro Petersburg, I'm of course keeping my fingers crossed for Sparta. <laughs> and that uh, illustrates a different perspective here. There are the natural tendencies in the British Islands, you know, to approach uh, Russians in terms of balance of power defeat of uh, Rangers makes less money for Rangers and thus the better opportunities for the other Glasgow team. Uh, I can't imagine uh, to think by this way somebody in 
Poland or Czech Republic. Uh, so here to find the, 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 the right balance, you ask about the Nord Stream. I think that the key problem is not that there is a project of the Nord Stream. The, the key problem is that the, the project of Nord Stream was agreed by the Russians and Germans just and ignoring the interests of the countries which are bypassed by that in particular Poland and the Baltic states. And uh, I think that this is what we should avoid in Europe. Because, you know, I can imagine to tackle the Nord Stream in a way that would not harm the interest of Poland. It could be done easily. Uh, you know, it's not, you know, we are realists, so uh, Russians are part of, potentially part of the Western world, but, you know, it will take a lot of time once they will reach the moment uh, to behave fully like us. It's a huge country, so the transformation will take a time. There is not any tradition of, uh, of uh, the same kind of a democratic policy like in, 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 in Europe. They are now uh, have uh, and very assertive tendencies. They follow uh, their interests in a, in a, in a uh, uncompromising way sometimes. And this is something what uh, Europe or European countries should take into account. And I think that problem of Schroeder, contrary to uh, Angela Merkel, was that uh, Schroeder simply did not take those uh, sensitivities into account. So that's why we did not like his policies. I think it will constrain very much. Uh, a, you know, it squeezes the time for doing something. The European Parliament will not be in a session beginning by April, so the, the second quarter of the year we can just cut off. So it's about, the legislative work is about January to March. And it's a question, you know, if new treaty enters into force beginning by January, then we have also certain constraints by this fact that the new legislation, uh, this one which goes under the co-decision procedure, and there is this new rule on, you know, uh, uh, subsidiarity principle to uh, deepening of the subsidiarity principle, so there are eight weeks to consult the national parliament, so in certain cases you can cut off also January and February, so it, it just March will remain. Maybe, you know, we can enter into history that uh, during the Czech presidency, for the first time, no one legislative, uh, new legislative act will enter into force. But why not? Maybe it's a good ambition. I, I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes less is better than... <laughs> uh, 
I am joking, but uh, it will certainly affect us also. You know, the legislative work will go down, the political uh, work will go up. So if you remember the last campaigning, it was five, you know, four years ago under the Italian presidency. So maybe you still remember Martin Schulz, you know, unannounced socialist MEP wanted to make himself famous, so he provoked Berlusconi, who was the Italian prime minister at that time, and, uh, you know, taking the role of the presidency, uh, prime minister. It was not easy to provoke, it was not a difficult to provoke Berlusconi, and he made his career, so since that, Schulz uh, is <coughs> the leader of the socialist group there. So, you know, we can be in a similar situation, and sometimes it's not difficult to provoke Klaus or Topolanek or even myself, so, and we will have to be there every week. <laughs> so, it will be tough, and it will affect, uh, I think, a lot, more in the political, uh, both on the political and on, on, on the legislative ground. Um, hi, I have a question about the Lisbon strategy. Uh, in your talk, you make it look like it pretty much failed to bring up the competitiveness um, of the EU as a whole. Um, why do you think uh, this was the case, and in what way do you want to address it, and possibly if you could also say something about how the euro currency in the future, whether it would make sense for the Czech Republic to adopt it, um, and whether it would um, also help with the competitiveness of the EU as a whole. Uh, thank you. Yeah. I think first on the Lisbon strategy, the common wisdom is that the first phase was a real failure. Now, in this revised form, it's not a failure. I, you know, it's neither a big success, so it's difficult to. Uh, we just last week we had a meeting in 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 Prague. Organized the meeting. We organized uh, with the British the meeting of the like-minded countries on the better regulation subject. So, and it's, uh, it's easy to find a common language with Britain, with Sweden, with uh, uh, Netherlands, with the Denmark, with uh, Estonians or, or Latvians. But uh, it's more difficult to deliver. So, we'll see. I think uh, we are expecting to have uh, uh, the strategic review on, on uh, exactly uh, that uh, subject uh, in spring 2009. And this is something, you know, what, what could be uh, also uh, politically attractive, at least for some of those who will campaign uh, for the European Parliament. Euro, uh, congratulations to Slovakia. Uh, I think you were working hard to keep inflation, inflation under the control in the past few, few, few months. It was not easy, you know, when the prices of food and uh, the resources are skyrocketing high in most of the European countries. Uh, whether this would have the effect on our decision-making? Uh, it certainly can have some, some uh, 
some effect uh, if uh, if uh, uh, the the Commission or the Cent European Central Bank uh, position on, on Slovakia would be a negative, like uh, what's happened to, to Lithuania a year ago. I think it would certainly have a negative impact. This positive uh, will have a positive. I think it uh, does not necessarily mean that uh, we will sit down in this, during the summer holidays and will uh, will uh, decide on entering uh, into the EMR mechanism. But I think that if uh, we, uh, you know, the problem is that when we uh, took the power, uh, we could not apply because uh, the state fina finances would not allow us to do that, you know, after the uh, socialist uh, policies before uh, the 2006 elections uh, brought the country outside of the tra trajectory of, of, of the convergence program. Uh, we could not do this. Now we are back uh, on track uh, with the fiscal, uh, fiscal discipline uh, on the inflation. Mm, you know, we have to wait now. We have to wait because uh, beyond those influences of the global markets in food and uh, oil, uh, we also started with the tax reform uh, in January, so the current inflation would not allow us to, uh, you know, we, we can enter into EMR, but, uh, you know, you need, uh, I think uh, we for, would first wait for with, with the inflation. So I can expect uh, some debate later this year, you know, September, October, or maybe already in August, and the decision to enter into system, it can come a year, two years after. So it will, our entry into Eurozone will not come earlier than something like 2012-2013. We are under certain pressure of the, mostly of the big companies, you know, because Czech Corona is constantly appreciating. You know, right now it's 23, 24 crowns to euro, and it was a few years ago, it was 32, 33. So I think that seen in that context, you know, it's, it's, it's better to have the exchange rate something like 23 or 20 than just to have 30. It's uh, about the wealth of the people. So, uh, that pressure from the exporters is that they are losing the profits, but if you, if you take the real numbers, the export was booming in the past two years. And uh, there is a surplus in, in our foreign trade. So, you know, maybe they were losing some of the potential profit, but still they were profiting a lot. So I think, you know, it's about finding the right moment. It's not the question whether, 
it was responded by our accession. Uh, but this is the question one, exactly, sometimes, you know, 2013 or after, but will not wait much longer, it's my estimate. I did not understand the last sentence, but uh, to uh, I think you know that discussing the tools of what should be done, maybe three things in mind. First, uh, there is the debate, you know, how to uh, measure the administrative burden and what uh, could be done to bring uh, the administrative burden down. All those like-minded countries, they uh, have already adopted their uh, national goals and uh, they are trying to, to show certain leading role and part of that will be pushing the others to, uh, to do this uh, this year to, to adopt all those national goals, 25% uh, down to 2010 or 2012. Uh, second is uh, uh, there is this Stoiber uh, Stoiber uh, Commission. You know, one can approach this that it was just an attempt to find some job for Edmund Stoiber when he had to leave as a Bavarian Prime Minister. But we have Pavel Terichka there as the Czech uh, participants and we are discussing uh, regularly and, uh, you know, they will be trying to push, uh, you know, really to, 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 to uh, screen the legislation and to push for, you know, simplification of uh, almost uh, 100 uh, uh, concrete legislative pieces. Uh, the third area which, you know, where we are thinking about, when uh, we had this debate, uh, you know, post-constitutional debate which led to the Lisbon Treaty, we had a problem both in uh, the former constitutional project as well as with the current, uh, current uh, Lisbon Treaty with the so-called Big Passarelle, so it's possibility to change the treaty without uh, 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 the need or requirements for the consent of the parliaments. And, uh, you know, this so-called flexibility clause. So we, all, we propose that, of, okay, if you, if you need it, then let's take it as a two-way street. So not just flexibility in bringing the competencies from national level to uh, 
the European, but also uh, as a mechanism how uh, to get rid of certain European legislation if uh, there is an agreement that's not important, that you know, there is no reason to regulate this on the European level. Uh, it was difficult because, you know, uh, first, on the first side, we were accused that we want to, uh, uh, to uh, get rid of the uh, legislative, uh, the monopoly of the legislative initiative of the European Commission, and, you know, the European Commission will never propose, you know, to get rid of certain competence. Uh, then in certain modifying uh, version, uh, we want this to get this as a part of, mm, uh, uh, of the treaty. And I think, you know, this is uh, the way where we should start with some practical uh, steps to, to, to try to do that. So, you know, what uh, the various proposals can come either from Stoiber Commission and others, so just, you know, to find a group of states and to propose uh, uh, a measure. Uh, so the last sentence was about languages, keeping all the EU languages for <laughs> registration instead of one or two. You know, I would be in favor of just speaking English. But I have to tell you that I'm the only one. If there is a meeting of, uh, of uh, the General and Foreign Affairs uh, Council or External Affairs Council. You know, most of, even, even among this group, most of the people use uh, their native languages. There are the, you know, the Danes speaks in English, sometimes the Dutch. Well, it's all. And if you have the European Council meeting, everybody uses the native language. So it's a Babel Tower. The Babel Tower is growing, so, you know, we had two languages. Uh, the official, now, you know, German was added, so, and others, others, others. Uh, so, on one hand, you have to push for a deeper integration. On, on the other hand, you're just deepening the Babel Tower problem. And it's a symptomatic, it illustrates something. So my personal view, let's speak in English. I'm a transatlantist, as, uh, that's a correct. And one of the reasons why I'm a transatlantist, because I want to keep uh, English as a lingua franca in Europe. It's not just because of the security uh, concern. It's, just, it's not just because, you know, I, I'm convinced that we need the Anglo-Saxon in influence uh, because otherwise we would lose the competitiveness of the continent fully in, in, in a year. But even, you know, culturally we need English. Uh, and I, I'm afraid that without the transatlantic link, we would lose English as a lingua franca pretty soon. And for us, you know, Czechs, English is not, you know, we can't aspire that the Czech language would dominate Europe. So English is acceptable.
I think in general, less uh, money uh, to uh, uh, first, uh, less money to agriculture, more money to you know research development. That's A. B. Step by step, rather less than more redistribution in general. But of course, you know it's easy to sell. It's easy to tell, and it's <laughs> difficult to win. Uh, and, but we must act, you know, I can show you the example at home. I, I told you the less money for CAP. Uh, and I think that this long-time policy, this is a long-time policy of the Czech Republic because, you know, our farmers just, it's about 4% of our labor force and, you know, agriculture, maybe it's 3% of the GDP, no more. So a very different situation from Poland, for example. But it's not easy. Now, and I am, you know, I, you told that I am a senator and I escaped uh, from Prague to northern Bohemia, so there is an area where I have to, really the, far, the real farmers, they are friends of mine. But look, they are, now they are receiving the money. And, you know, it's not as much money as they as their French counterpart received, so there is still the injustice. So our policy is that, you know, it must be equal, but bring down. But with that amount of money, what they are uh, receiving in the past few years, you know, you can see the change. They were quite poor five years ago or ten years ago. Now they have their Hugo Boss ties, you know, Harrod suits. They have no John Deere's in their barnies. And it's like a heroin, you know. You, you have to be careful now, you know. If I am coming to, to meet them, and that's every second weekend, you know, I have to be in contact with my voters. No, <laughs> I have to be careful, you know. Not If I would respond your question to them in a such straight way, <laughs> I would have a problem. So... But we have to do this rather sooner because, you know, if you are taking a heroin for a long time, you know, it's less chance to give up. I am a, you know, heavy smoker. I do not like this, you know, limits on the freedom which you put on us. It's, it's, for me, it's a terrible, you know, to come to London. No, I, I can't smoke anyway. And I'm smoking for... 30 years, and you know, it's it's deep addict, so I, I can't give up this. I would not be able to concentrate on my jobs. So it's, it's difficult to give up, so uh, rather to, uh, to, to reform soon than to wait, because waiting and having more addicts would be a problem. We have still uh, time for other questions or comments. Okay. No question. So maybe I ask the last one, and then I will go to smoke because you know I've already. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to go probably outside of the thing.
Sorry. I will go outside of the building. There is a nice terrace, so it's not far away. Uh, Minister, one question about the Lisbon Treaty and the ratification process in uh, the Czech Republic. So we know that uh, the Lisbon Treaty is under review, that the Constitutional Court of the Czech Republic has to give an opinion. Could you tell us uh, anything about the timing of the, of the opinion? Will we get it before the Irish referendum? That's my first question. And my second question, do you think that there is a, uh, a good possibility uh, that we have to change the uh, Czech constitution, make it compatible with the Lisbon Treaty, after the opinion of the Constitutional Court? Look, I don't know. I can't speak on behalf of the Constitutional Court. I'm a member of the government, and the government in our system, unfortunately, can, can, cannot ask uh, the Constitutional Court for the opinion. So the French government question. can do this. Just your personal view. Uh, I, of course. So look, on the timing, Senate has sent this uh, to the Constitutional Court maybe three weeks ago or so. It's just recently. So... I would expect them to work and to respond sometimes, you know, late summer, early September. That's what they need at least four months of hard work to, uh, to produce the opinion. So then it will come back to the Parliament. So I would expect late fall, around November. But, you know, we will not be the last one. Sweden, they have the same plans, the Dutch, you know, what about Belgium, you know, it's a very long procedure in all the parliaments. Uh, so we will do this on time, it's not a tactical game, you know. Uh, and on the substance, I don't know, you know, what they're going to uh, to do. I do not expect any uh, revolutionary statement. Uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the text which uh, you know, the Senate submitted to the Constitutional Court, there is not the argument that the treaty is uh, against uh, the constitutional order. Uh, there are few areas which are called the sensitive, and then the Senate asks whether those sensitive areas are in conformity or full conformity without, uh, with our constitutional order. And the question goes mainly to two issues. One is uh, the Charter on the uh, Fundamental Rights. And here, you know, I don't know, either um, uh, the court, I don't know, but uh, I think if you study, for, for example, uh, some decision by the German constitutional courts, there are something like yes or ja, aber, yes, but. And it's the question, you know, because there is not a, uh, there is not a Supreme Court in Europe which would uh, uh, make a judgment on the competencies to decide on you know, if, if there is the European Court of Justice, but it has to decide on the matters which belongs to the EU domain. But what's going to happen if the EU European Court of Justice 
uh, will expand its power a bit outside of the EU domain. Then the, the, constitution, the National Constitutional Court is the only counterpart. So, you know, whether they would fence the territory around their competencies, I don't know. That's, you know, if you ask my private, that could be a, I don't know whether. And then is uh, the, the second issue which uh, is, uh, where, where, where the senators are asking about the opinion is this uh, large passerelle. So this flexibility, you know, changing the treaty without the need, automatic need of the ratification in the parliament. And, you know, it can be corrected easily that you uh, change the rules of the procedures uh, which are part of the law, both for Senate and for the House, that... Uh, and it's, uh, there are the precedents from Finland or Denmark that the mandate with, uh, which the government will leave uh, is, is limited, that simply the Prime Minister is not allowed to uh, agree until it has the permission from the Parliament. And imagine the, the Irish vote has said no to Is the Czech government going to continue the ratification process in this case? Mm, no, I think uh, we should stop because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not, it was not a product of the convention, it was a product of the IGC and everybody should agree. So we have to wait. Uh, don't know, but it, it will not enter into force until the last one undersigned. That's, I think, a, a clearly legal stand. So the Irish must vote. Yes, <laughs> and we will keep them, our fingers crossed. I, say, I think, you know, we have to get rid of that already. I, you know, it's no secret that we do not belong to those who are dancing on the f table in a complete happiness. You know, this treaty is a, uh, you know, it's part of the deal. There's enlargement, so from 15 to 25, 27. So, yes, we understand that the bigger countries needs to, uh, again, expand their cake. It's mostly about this. This is the so-called effectivity principle. Uh, yes, we are realists, so we agree. We will ratify. I, I will vote in favor once it will come to the Senate floor again. Don't be afraid, and uh, the Czechs are the realists. But I think we should concentrate on the more important issues which uh, really make us successful in the world. This was about the internal power games in Europe, the redistribution of the power. That's mostly... <laughs> So, and, you know, I belong to one part of the political spectrum, but, you know, the social democrats, are they campaigning, you know, somehow loudly for this now? And if I would be campaigning for the Lisbon Treaty or the Constitution, the previous Constitution project, in Germany, yes, I can easily imagine how to explain this to the people how they benefit. 
in my country it's a bit more difficult. So, you know, yes, on the basis of certain realism, it's a compromise. You know, the language is that this is marriage of wisdom, not marriage of love. Yeah? And that's the people understand that and 55% are in favor, 45% against. We are not organizing a, a referendum, so we are very constructive. Mr. we have to thank you very much for this uh, very substantial uh, uh, speech. Uh, thank you so much also for this uh, good sense of humor. I, and, and I know this is something the Brits and the Czechs have in common, very good <laughs> sense of humor. Probably the other thing they have in common is a love for the federal state, you know, the European federal state, of course. Um, thank you so much, and uh, we will uh, look forward to seeing you again at, uh, at LSE. We wish you a nice travel back to Prague and a successful presidency of the European Union. Thank you.